This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads, and we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. This is an exciting time because Tracy is here visiting, so she's right across the table from me. It is a stupendous day. It is also an exciting time because I uh, have just launched a new podcast. Yes, you have. Called Drawn, the story of animation, which is about animation. It is. Uh, and to prep for that podcast, uh, producer Noel and I actually traveled all over the place and interviewed dozens and dozens of people in the animation industry. And uh, one of the interviews we did that was just an utter delight was Rebecca Sugar, who is the creator of Steven Universe. I would like to say it does not surprise me at all that this was an utter delight. It was an absolute delight. And she is such a thoughtful and interesting speaker in her approach to animation and, frankly, the world is so unique and really, like, thoughtful doesn't give it enough credit, but she thinks about everything and and what it means and its import in this really beautiful way. But one of the people that she mentioned really loving uh, in terms of the work that they had done was Lotta Reiniger, who was an animator in Germany at the turn of the 20th century. And uh, Lotta Reiniger is one of those people that if you're into animation, you have heard of her probably because she did some really important stuff and was really a trailblazer. But if you are not into animation, you may have never heard of her unless you saw that Google Doodle a couple years ago and went, who is that? (laughs) That was Lotta Reiniger. And so I thought she merited her own episode. Yes. You may have seen bits of her work or things that were influenced by her work. Her work is influential. Uh, yeah. Uh, there is actually a segment in an episode of Steven Universe that's based on her work. Um, there are a couple other cartoons where you see things that show up because her work is unique and it was pretty much the same her entire career. So it's really easy to spot when people have been influenced by it. Right. So Lotta was born Charlotte Elizabeth Eleanor Reiniger at the very end of the 19th century, on June 2nd, 1899. She was born in Berlin, Charlottenburg, Germany. And Lotta was interested in silhouettes and paper cutting from the time she was a child. 
She was also interested in other forms of art. She painted and she put on plays there in the house. She really loved acting. But her scissors and her skill with them uh, would dominate her life. And to her, this was just something she did almost unconsciously. Paper cutting as a folk art was really common in Germany and Switzerland at the time. That had been influenced largely by Asian artwork that had had been uh, kind of migrated its way over and that interest was very big in Europe. Uh, But Lada really excelled at it in a way that seemed effortless. She wrote an article for Sight and Sound magazine in 1936, and here's something that she wrote in it. Quote, I will attempt to answer the questions, which I am nearly always asked by people who watch me making the silhouettes. Firstly, how on earth did you get the idea? And secondly, how do they move and why are your hands not seen on screen? The answer to the first is to be found in the short and simple history of my own life. I never had the feeling that my silhouette cutting was an idea. It so happened that I could always do it quite easily, as you will see from what follows. I could cut silhouettes almost as soon as I could manage to hold a pair of scissors. I could paint, too, and read and recite, but these things did not surprise anyone very much. But everybody was astonished about the scissor cuts, which seemed a more unusual accomplishment. She also, as she said, enjoyed theater. She loved to put on plays well into her teens. And at one point, she described her early attempts at staging plays in her family's small apartment to be a little bit chaotic because of the space limitations. But then when she started using her silhouettes to put on shows, it solved the problem. She made herself a small little shadow theater, and she staged, among other things, Shakespearean plays in it. When she started studying under theatrical director Max Reinhardt, she would watch all of the plays staged at the theater from the wings. And she was so taken by the actors as seen from that angle that she started cutting out silhouettes of them while she was watching the shows. Yeah, it really was like one of those things. Uh, It's almost how if you know someone who knits and they take their knitting everywhere with them and they'll have full long conversations with you while they're Mm -hmm. banging out a sweater or something. Very similar. She would just have the scissors and paper all the time. She started her professional career at 17, when she was hired first to make title cards and then to make rat puppets for director Paul Wegener. Those rats were for the film The Pied Piper of Hamelin. And Lada had actually been inspired to study with Reinhardt at the theater after attending a lecture by Wegener, which had led her to the decision to become an actress. Wegener had first tried to use live rats for his film, but they panicked and they ran everywhere except after the actor playing the Pied Piper which was what the action called for. So he ended up having to go with the wooden rats, which had earlier been dismissed as too time-consuming a possibility. Wegener had seen Lata backstage at the theater run by Max Reinhardt, cutting out all her silhouettes, and he was fascinated. He liked the way she captured movement with paper and shadow, and he introduced her to other artists who were experimenting with the new medium of animation. And just as Wegener had been fascinated with her cutouts, she was fascinated with animation. Later writing, quote, This was in 1919, and the work was so interesting that from that time, I have rarely done anything else. Within a couple of years, Lada was making her own films, short silhouette animations for the German Institute of Cultural Research. And this institute was set up to be sort of a workshop where art and science came together in film, and it quickly became identified as a nexus of experimental animation. So during those early years, Lada's love of fairy tales was a prime force in this creative endeavor. Her 1922 short animation of the Cinderella story is captivating. It starts out with the animator's hands visible as silhouettes, shows Cinderella being cut from the paper to come to life almost as if by magic. 
Yeah, I was watching this last night while I was prepping. <laughs> and my husband did not know what I was watching because I had my headphones on. It's silent, but there's uh, often you'll see it posted with music attached to it. And I was really squirming in my seat. And he's like, what are you watching? And I was like, <laughs> Lana Reinecker's Cinderella. And he's like, is it that troubling? And I was like, somehow with cut out silhouette paper, the cutting of the foot is really upsetting. Oh, no. Like she really like animates like the spurty blood oh. in silhouette. And it was, it could just be that I was in one of those states where I was highly susceptible to um, just being kind of squeamish about something. but. It's oddly affecting to see it in that stark contrast. And uh, one of the people in that art scene that Paul Wegener introduced Lada to was art historian Carl Koch, who was also part of that experimental animation group. And the pair met in 1919, and they were married two years later on December 6, 1921. Lada's and Carl's relationship was not just romantic. They were artistic partners, and they worked together for the rest of their lives. On projects, Lada tended to lead artistically while Carl helmed the technical aspects of their various projects and handled the camera. In the 1920s, they spent their time between Berlin and Paris, and they were deep in the modern art scene. German playwright and poet Bertolt Brecht was a friend and an avid supporter. Film director and author Jean Renoir was also a friend and a fan and famously said of Reniger, quote, she was born with magic hands. Lata described Berlin at the time as a place of, quote, many artists who went their own ways and tried out new methods of animating films. Yeah, it was, a you know, that unique time that uh, throughout Europe, I think in any of the, the sort of capital cities, there was a lot of really interesting art happening post-World War I as everybody was kind of recovering. Just the way people looked at the world had changed, and so a lot of really interesting stuff was going on. Uh, Louis Hagen was another important male figure in Lada's early career. Hagen was a banker, and he saw Lada's potential, so much so that he provided his own money for her to make her first feature-length film. He had also invested in film stock uh, at the time. And this was actually a pretty unique situation because Lada wasn't pitching a movie to potential investors or anything. It wasn't like she said, I have a project and I need someone to fund it. She, like other animators, was making short, fun films at the Institute. And at the time, a 10-minute animated film was considered long. So when Hagen saw Lada's work and then asked if it was possible to make a feature-length shadow puppet film, it was pretty visionary on his part. Although the initial reaction amongst most people was that it was a terrifying idea because it was so ambitious. But Reiniger, Koch, and the collaborators that they worked with all thought that it was a really interesting idea, and they decided to try it. The Adventures of Prince Ahmed was the result, and this is often cited by film historians as the first animated feature film, rather than Snow White, which is the what in the popular memory was the first one. Uh, Prince Ahmed predates Disney's Snow White by more than a decade. Reiniger's film came out in 1926, while Disney's movie had a 1937 release. Whether that discrepancy is due to Lata's film being a smaller release or simply having been foreign and not picked up by the English-language press is not quite clear. Yeah, we'll talk about it in a bit, but getting distribution for that film was a little bit tricky, so that may have been part of it. But also, I think some of it, too, is just the Disney engine of PR, right? Mm -hmm. Like, at that point in the 1930s, Disney was well-known. He had already done, uh, you know, Steamboat Willie, of course, had happened, and he was already seen in the the U.S. as really a visionary. And so I think that story kind of ballooned and 
Corlotta's work was left a little behind in terms of historical record. As an aside, too, we should mention that there is actually a third film that sometimes comes up as a possible precursor to both Snow White and Prince Ahmed as a feature-length animation, and that is a project completed in Argentina in 1917 titled El Apostol, and that film was created by Quirino Cristiani. And the problem in this one lies with verification, because while El Apostol may have been the first animated feature, no prints of the film survived, so we don't actually know whether it was long enough to qualify for the title of first feature-length animated film. We are going to talk more about the specifics of the adventures of Prince Ahmed and how it was made, but first we are going to pause for a sponsor break. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. The production of Prince Ahmed ran from 1923 to 1926. Lada and her husband Carl thought that in telling the story as a silhouette puppet animation, they could sidestep the technical problems that a live-action version of that story would have, and they could be completely creative in ways that would be stifled if they had to worry about things like sets and actors and logistics having a huge crew. For example, a demon made with a paper cutout wouldn't have any of the limitations that it would in live action. You wouldn't have to worry about a costume looking right or realistic or any of that. And similarly, carpets and horses could take flight without a massive crew wrangling pulleys or worrying about actor safety. 
The film wasn't made by the two of them alone. They had a small team to help them bring the idea to life. The banker, Lewis Hagen, set up an attic studio for the production. Carl Koch was the producer. Lottet designed, cut, and animated all the characters in the backgrounds. Walter Rutman headed up the special effects, creating the fire and the volcanoes and the magic. And Bertold Bartosz created a sea storm for the film. Alexander Cardin and Walter Turk worked as Lotta's assistants since her workload was huge. Yeah, and these were all people that had come out of that same institute of animation. So they were all friends and collaborators. And they had decided early on in the process that they were going to adapt something from the Arabian Nights. And the idea was that they wanted to select a subject, like we were saying above, that could only be done with the unique opportunities that Lotta's shadow puppets offered. The team poured over the stories of the Arabian Nights, and they finally selected the elements that they felt would be perfect for the film style that they were planning. And then they assembled those elements into a narrative, and they refined their script until Prince Ahmed's story emerged. As the team worked, they were really breaking new ground. The idea of making a film in stop motion with silhouette puppets was new. They didn't even know if what they were filming would work until they had the film developed. So they were working with the knowledge that all the effort they were putting in could turn out to be for nothing. Yeah, nowadays when people do stop action, they can look right back at it on digital and be like, oh yeah, that one, we're, oh no, we got to go back. Or they'd be like, we spent 12 hours setting up these shots and we have garbage. Oh no. <laughs> Should be a heartbreaking way to, to do it. Uh, and this was understandably really stressful for Lada. Uh, there's a lot of talk anytime you're reading about the production of Prince Ahmed about how she was having some very real anxiety issues. Uh, in addition to the unknown nature of the outcome, the attic studio that Hagen set up wasn't very tall. To set up the camera that they needed over the animation table, they had to use all of the vertical space available, which meant that Lada was working on a table that was very close to the floor. And she actually sat on a seat that had been removed from a car and then placed directly on the floor as she assembled shots. And this vertical setup was actually very similar, but again, predated uh, the multiplane camera that was used by Disney when Snow White was being made in the 1930s. Wolfgang Zeller was brought in to compose the film's music. And because film didn't have embedded sound at this point, it was common for an orchestra to play live with the films. Frames with cues for the conductor were spliced into the adventures of Prince Ahmed so that the score would perfectly complement the visuals on screen. Uh, yeah, the score was one of those things that Lotta really felt like would provide this support structure for the story and like just give it that extra little something that it might need. Uh, so that was also a, a kind of ambitious thing in the midst of, of uh, early animation. And we'll talk a little bit about how she timed that out in a bit. Uh, there were also some financial challenges that happened during the three years of film production. So the German economy, of course, was still in a period of recovery from the First World War. And as the country tried to stabilize, there were times when it looked like their backer Hagen might not be able to keep paying for the project. But uh, he was really quite dedicated, even though in the end he never made any money off of this investment, but he really was devoted to it. Uh, and they managed to pull it through, and they finished the film in early 1926. But even once the film was complete, there was a problem. No theaters wanted to show it. They felt like it didn't look like a complete film. So Lada and her team took on a second project, which was staging a premiere. In May of 1926, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed was shown in a small theater in northern Berlin to a delighted audience with Wolfgang Zeller himself conducting the orchestra. Yeah, apparently he got 
his usual orchestra to kind of do it as a favor to him because they were basically doing this whole thing on a shoestring. And this screening turned out to be something of a comedy of errors. Reiniger and her team had asked everyone they knew in the arts community to invite people. And they did that. And they were thinking, oh, it's on a Sunday afternoon. No one's going to come anyway. But it turned up that way more people showed up than they were expecting. Uh, So many so that there were arguments among attendees as they tried to jockey for seats. And then the lens on the projector broke. So Carl Koch went on a desperate adventure to try to get a replacement. Even though it was Sunday afternoon and all the shops were closed, he did manage to, however, uh, because of the kindness of a shopkeeper. Police arrived and they tried to shut the whole event down because the theater was overcrowded. And then towards the end, when all of that was taken care of, Lada spotted smoke and she thought that the nitrate film had actually caught fire. But thankfully, that smoke was coming from damp sacks that had been stacked on a heating vent. It was more of a steam situation, although probably not terribly safe. Uh, But it was at least not the film catching on fire and did not cause a panic and stampede of people running out. Of the overcrowded theater that the police tried to shut down. (laughs) She was very aware that the theater was not a safe place for something like that to happen. Despite all this mayhem, though, the film went on, and this was basically an invitation screening similar to a press event that might happen today. The reviews from the press were spectacular. Yeah, the next day was like Lotta Reiniger celebration day in the press, basically. <laughs> uh, two months later, there was another screening in Paris, which was also a complete success, and this is considered the film's public opening. It had a three-month run in one theater, and then it transferred to another in Paris, where it ran for six more months. It gained a worldwide audience, but it still was not shown in Lada's own country of Germany. Eventually, a German distributor bought it and touted it as a detective film. It was super weird. Uh, But eventually, Lada Reiniger took legal action. She got all the rights to the film back, and she was able to show it as intended in her home country. After the success of the Prince Ahmed project, she turned to the story of Dr. Doolittle and his animals for her next project. That film, which has a 33-minute runtime, debuted in 1928. In 1929, she started a new film, this time a live-action feature called The Pursuit of Happiness. Her live-action directorial debut fell victim to poor industry timing. Between the start of the film and the finish of it, sound had become part of the cinema experience, so what had started out as a silent film was delayed so that the dialogue could be dubbed in. But that effort went really poorly, and the film was a failure. After that, she made no more live-action or feature-length films and went back to animated shorts for good. And as is the case with anyone that we talk about from this time period in Europe, the rise of the Nazi party in Germany impacted Reiniger's life and work. In the 1930s, she and Karl left Germany. In her words, quote, because I didn't like this whole Hitler thing and because I had many Jewish friends whom I was no longer allowed to call friends. In the process, a number of her films were lost. She had left the negatives behind. From 1935 until the end of World War II, Lotta and Carl lived a pretty nomadic life. They moved from country to country, but continued their work and continued collaborating with other artists. In 1943, they did return for a while to Germany. Lotta's mother was ill, and the couple took care of her during that time. When the war ended, they became British citizens. And once they settled north of London, they opened a production studio called Primrose Production. Their business partner in this venture was Lewis Hagen Jr. That was the son of the banker who had funded the adventures of Prince Ahmed. And this was a really prolific time. Lada was incredibly productive in her new home, and she was churning out about a half dozen shorts a year initially. Carl died in 1963, and Lada was devastated. She started 
To become more withdrawn, she stopped working. She made no films for the next decade as she mourned her partner in life and art. But Lada did not stay hidden away forever. And when we come back, we'll talk about her later career a little bit. Uh, But first, we're going to pause for a word from one of our sponsors. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution and the business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. There are certain decision makers that are restless. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. These restless ones are in pursuit of bigger, better, stronger. They seek new partners, new strategies, new processes. They pursue innovative platforms and solutions to propel their teams, businesses, and industries forward. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. In 1969, Lada Reiniger returned to Germany for the first time since the end of the war. Her work was being rediscovered by art enthusiasts in Germany and abroad, and this really led to a second phase of her career. She started a lecture tour in the United States. She loved sharing her knowledge with others and wasn't the least bit secretive about telling people exactly how her films were made. In doing so, she got excited about making animation again. And in these talks, Reiniger described her animation technique as very simple. She would literally use words like primitive and caveman to describe her art, even though the look of her animation feels almost enchanted. It does not seem primitive at all, even to modern eyes, I don't think. But to her, it was just a matter of following a series of simple steps. Time-consuming, but she didn't think there was anything special or difficult or unique about it. This reminds me of... um like people who are really, really skilled and adept at, at something will be like, oh, it's easy. You just do this. <laughs> and, well, okay, that's easy for you, but not, <laughs> not for me so much. So she would cut her figures out of black cardboard and thin lead. The lead sections helped keep the paper flat. She would attach the limbs at hinged joints with the pieces wired together. And then to create the appearance of movement, the figures were photographed frame by frame with minuscule shifts in their postures and limbs so that once the frames were run all in succession, the characters moved. So this is really similar to how stop-motion animation is filmed, but in this case, the puppets are flat. The backgrounds were also cut paper, but that medium was transparent, and it was layered to create shifts in the background. Yeah, her background stuff is so beautiful and looks so rich to me. I just encourage everybody to watch one of hers because you'll be like, that's just paper. <laughs> but it's really, really beautiful. Uh, the figures and the backgrounds were laid on a backlit glass table for photography. And the light was bright enough that it caused the various wires at the hinges to disappear visually as the frames were captured one by one on that camera suspended over the glass table. To keep the soundtrack and the animation timed together, Lotta would time out the soundtrack and then use that to calculate how many frames she needed for the piece of music she was using based on needing 24 frames per second. And that calculation was basically a, a shot list as she advanced her camera one frame at a time to create the finished piece of film. There are an estimated 300,000 shots in Prince Ahmed. Yeah, to elaborate on that just a little. So basically, she'd be like, okay, this music has 
four bars of this melody that I want to use, and it takes six seconds or whatever. I'm probably coming up with completely um, ridiculous numbers here. But then she would multiply that by 24 and realize that was the number of frames she had for, you know, this character to gesture carefully or whatever. And so she would break that down and be like, that means I have to move it this much per frame to complete this gesture. Painstaking. Yes, but to her, it's so simple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's a really good video that I will include in the show notes that was made kind of later in her life that is a little bit of a mind blower because it is that thing where it's somebody that goes, it's so easy, and you see her cutting out a, a character from one of her things, and she draws, like, the most rudimentary guide before she starts cutting, but then she's and really fast, and then it comes out and it looks perfect. And then she doesn't even draw, and she's cutting legs and arms and putting it all together. And she looks like a sorceress. Like <laughs> None of it seems like a human could be assembling it all and bringing it to life that quickly. Again, she was clearly very skilled. That's why people marveled at her as a child. Um, but in 1980, Lada made her last film, which was called The Four Seasons. And then she died on June 19th, 1981, after having just turned 82. In recent years, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed has been restored, and this was a painstaking process. As we mentioned earlier, there was no existing camera negative, and none of the original German prints survived either. But the British Film Institute has a colored nitrate positive of the film with English intertitles. Those are those transition cards that appear in older films so the audience can read exposition or character dialogue. This is a copy that is meant to be used to create other copies. Because of its delicate nature, and because they realize this is an important thing to preserve, three black and white duplicate negatives were made of that uh, nitrate positive over the years. One in 1945, one in 1955, and one in 1969. And then those copies were the ones that were used to make additional copies of the film. But the nitrate positive has been well cared for, and it is in relatively good shape. So the film restoration lab, La Magine Retrovata in Bologna, Italy, was able to make a new, beautiful copy of the film with the score intact. It was released by Milestone Films in 2001, and it's now available on home video, so a whole new audience can discover this very haunting and imaginative artistry. Yeah, it's a really fun movie. Um... I have not been able to find it. I saw a note somewhere that someone said it had been on Filmstruck, if you are a subscriber to that service and you want to see it. But I can't find it on Filmstruck currently. So I don't know if it's like Netflix where some things come and go. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is available on home video if you are looking for it. Uh, Over the course of her six-decade career, Lotta Reiniger made almost 60 films. This is a woman working in animation, (laughs) directing all of these films, uh, which is why people call her a trailblazer. But she was so under the uh, radar, I think, particularly for U.S. uh, consumers that nobody realized, like, oh, there's this amazing woman director making all of these really beautiful films. Mm -hmm. Uh, About 20 of her films, unfortunately, have been lost. And I wanted to close out with a quote from Lada, because it illustrates just how much she preferred to focus on the art of her work rather than analyzing the technical aspects of it, which, as you recall, we mentioned, is kind of more her husband Carl's domain. And this uh, quote is again from that 1936 essay that she wrote for Sight and Sound magazine. She wrote, quote, There remains a good deal to say about the artistic problems of this type of film, about its future, and about its value. But I am content to leave these matters to those people whose profession it is to bother about such problems. I feel that I do better to concentrate on making the films and on making as many as my good luck allows. 
Each new film raises new problems and questions, and I can only hope to live long enough to do justice to them all. Kind of a good That's encapsulation lovely. of what she was like. She really was like, uh, especially I think uh, after she, you know, did not enjoy trying to get into live action film and mm-hmm. had some some other problems where she was like, look, this is what I'm good at. and I really like doing it and I think it's magical and fun and I'm going to keep going forever. Which is an interesting. I Very few people have that kind of career focus their entire lives. Yeah. Yeah. She yeah. did a lot of beautiful stuff. I uh, encourage people, like I said, we'll include that that uh, video of her, a link to that video in our show notes. But if you just tootle around the web looking at her work, you'll be delighted and probably in a rabbit hole for a long time. So I apologize for any time you may lose, but it's well spent in my opinion. Do you have some listener mail for us? I do. It is from our listener, Patty, and she says, Greetings and salutations. I listen to your podcast while I'm at my full-time weekday job at Case Western Reserve University Medical Library. Uh, she works at Interlibrary Loan, which I did briefly at Oglethorpe University. <laughs> uh, you might notice that the flip side of this letter is a page from a photocopied article that is now ready to be reused and recycled. I love when people do that, so thank you. Uh, however, you might find my part-time weekend job far more interesting. She works as a gallery guard at the Cleveland Museum of Art. What? I do find that interesting. I have mm-hmm. been to that museum, and I like it. Heaps. Uh, I've enclosed some booklets from recent and ongoing installations I thought you might be interested in, including fashionable mourners. Oh, that's good stuff. Uh, <laughs> conserving Caravaggio, William Morris, Designing an Earthly Paradise, and my favorite, Rodin, 100 Years. His The Thinker is probably one of the most parodied works of art, and the CMA has the most notorious copy, the one that was vandalized by an explosion in 1970. She uh, bookmarked the page in the book about it uh, so that we could see it easily. So there's plenty here to ooh and ah over because the CMA is pretty darned awesome. Awesome. I agree. And then she makes a really interesting um, suggestion for a story, but she sent us so much material from the museum that I... I love this stuff. It is no secret. You guys have heard me wax rhapsodic about museums many times on the show before. And museum catalogs are like, ooh, that's good stuff. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things on earth. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Patty, because this is a delight and I feel very spoiled. I love it. I will uh, be kept very busy and out of trouble, hopefully, for a while with these. <laughs> I saw them sitting here on the table and because I'm not in this studio physically with you often, I, it didn't occur to me that they were something that you brought in here for listener mail. I was like, who left all this art on the table? That's cool. Uh-huh, it is cool. And it was Patty. Uh, so if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. And we are at mistinhistory.com where you can visit us to see all of the episodes, see and listen to all of the episodes that have ever existed of the show from the very beginning. And you can get some show notes for any of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together. So come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and we'll explore history together. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
we are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 